Yeah, I, I like to say when I was five years old, my dad moved us from uh, the promised land of Wisconsin to the wilderness of California. But uh, it's always nice to come back to the promised land and uh, taste of the milk and cheese curds. That's what I like to say. And uh, anyways, it's, uh, it's good to see you this morning and uh, glad to be here and thankful for the opportunity. Take your Bible if you could. Go to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew and chapter number 18. Matthew chapter number 18 this morning. And uh, my wife and I, we actually live in Yuma, Arizona. My brother John Getz Jr. is uh, our pastor. He pastors there in, uh, he pastors the Faith Baptist Church of Yuma, Arizona. And, um, and uh, so we live in the, the southwest corner of Arizona. And uh, Yuma, it's the sunniest place on earth. Apparently we get more sunshine than any other uh, city uh, in the world. And uh, what that basically just means is it's very hot. That's what it means. And uh, you say, well, it's a dry heat. Uh, you walk outside and have your eyes start to melt, and you tell me if you'd prefer the dry heat or the humid heat. It's heat is heat is what I say. So anyways, but uh, it's been wonderful weather. We like coming up to Wisconsin this time of the year. Not so much in the snow time of the year, but we do like coming up in this time of the year. And good to see you this morning. I want to pick up the story in verse number 21, if you can, where Peter comes to the Lord with a question. Verse number 21, Matthew chapter 18 says, Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? And Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Father, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to gather and worship you and uh, sing praise to your name. Give your name the glory and honor that it deserves. Lord, I pray that now in this moment, as we take the word of God and we open it up, that your spirit would go with your word and that you would speak to hearts, that, Lord, you would change lives, that we'd walk out differently than we've walked in, not because we heard a message or because we sung some songs or because we gave it an offering plate, but because we heard from you. Well, thank you for that. We will praise you for it. You're the only one worthy of it. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. My wife is an avid reader. Uh, Alexa loves to read, always has been that way. In fact, as a kid, when she would get in trouble, her parents would take her books away. They'd be like, no more, no more books for you. When I used to get in trouble as a kid, my parents would give me books to read. You know, you need to, you need to read it. So we're polar opposites in that regard. And uh, she'll read 75 to 100 books a year, it seems. And she's just always reading. It's a good use of time as we travel a lot in, in the van. We, uh, we travel full time in evangelism. So she'll be reading. I'll be driving. And and I like that. I like to be able to look out at the window, not have to always be in conversation. I like to just kind of see the different sights as you drive. But every once in a while, you drive through a boring state, you know, looking at you, Kansas. Like, there's just nothing in Kansas where it's just the same thing, mile after mile after mile. And so on those drives, I get a little bit tired of just looking out at the same thing over and over again. And on those drives, I would like to have a conversation, you know. But you don't want to be the guy that interrupts the good book. No one wants to be that guy. And so I have learned to ask the question, how's the book? Now, I've got no interest in the book. Could care less how it is, what it's about, how's it going. I'm just hoping that by asking that question, I can get her to close the book. We can talk about the book for a little bit, and then we can move on to better subjects like sports and the Packers and things like that. And so uh, we were driving through Kansas one day, and I was getting tired of the drive. And I uh, looked over. She was nose deep in a book. And I said, Alexa, how's the book? 
And I've never regretted asking that question as much as I did that morning. Uh, I've never seen my wife close the book so fast. It was, it was like she was anticipating me asking. She said, oh, Eric, you have got to read this book. I said, well, we both know that's not going to happen. So uh, why don't you just tell me what it's about? What is it called? She said, well, it's called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. Well, right away, I'm out. Uh, tidying up is not something I've been known to do. And uh, magic, I was raised Baptist, magic is of the devil, you know. And so I want nothing to do with this book. She said, well, well, the subtitle is called The Japanese Secret to Decluttering and Organizing Your Life. Wonderful. I said, uh, so what is the secret? Just out of you know, curiosity. Uh, what is the secret to decluttering and organizing your life? So she starts thumbing through the pages. Like she's got highlights that, that we're going to go over now. Like this is full class lecture mode now. And she starts reading from the book. This is an I quote from the book. The key to cleaning out your space is knowing exactly what you want to keep and then getting rid of everything else. Well, ain't that profound? I mean, like, that's the definition of cleaning up. I, I said, we paid money for this book? How much did we give this person to write basic definitions for cleaning up? She said, yeah, but Eric, how do you decide what you want to keep? Well, humoring the conversation more, I said, I don't know. How? How would you decide what you want to keep? She said, well, this is where the author is kind of known for her system. She says that you would, uh, you would kind of decide what you want to clean out first. So let's say you want to clean out your clothes. So you would go into your closet. You get all your clothes out. You get all your clothes out of the dresser. You kind of pile it up in a big pile so you could see the enormity of all of your stuff. And then one by one, you would take each item off of that pile and you would hold it up and you would ask it, do you spark joy? And if the answer is yes, you keep it. If the answer is no, you get rid of it. Well, I had to pull over on the side of, of the highway at this point. I am laughing so hard. All I can picture in my mind, like this is all I could think about, was going into my closet, getting my socks out of my drawer, and asking my socks, oh, socks, do you spark joy? No. I said, Lexa, if I did that, there wouldn't be anything left in my closet. She said, well, at least it'd be clean, you know. And... Uh, and uh, yeah, like I didn't put this shirt on this morning. I was like, whoa, the sparks are just flying off of this thing. Wow. No, no, that's not how, that's not how men operate. Uh, it was clean. It was ironed. So I put it on, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Now we laugh about that still today. It's an inside joke in our family. Anytime my son wants to buy something, he goes, Dad, this really sparks joy, you know? And uh, anytime my wife wants to buy something, I just say, I don't know, babe, not sparking much joy, you know? And uh, it sparked a lot of joy in my bank account. But the point is, we laugh about how often we hold on to things, even though they don't spark Joy. You know, it's true. We, we, we do become attached to emotions like bitterness and anger, hurts and offenses that they get stored up in the closet of our hearts, even though they rob us of our peace, even though they don't spark joy, we just can't seem to let them go. And so this morning, I've decided to come and, and kind of uh, uh, pull off of what Paul said to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4, when he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and malice be put away from you and be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. 
Paul said, you have allowed some hurts and offenses to get stored up in your life. And it has planted a seed of bitterness. And that seed has been watered and it has sprung forth all sorts of bitter fruit. Anger and clamor and, and envying and jealousy and backbiting. He said, it's, it's, it's plaguing your life and it's plaguing your church. He says, listen, you need to, by the grace of God, hold it up. Realize it's not sparking joy and get it out of your life. And instead, be kind one to, to another. What a novel thought that is. Be tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Simply put this morning, it's time to clean out the closet. It's time to clean out the closet. And here in Matthew chapter number 18, Peter comes to the Lord Jesus with a question. And it's a good question. In fact, it's a question that had been asked for about 200 years prior to Jesus even stepping foot onto the scene. The the question is simple. Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? In other words, how many times do I have to forgive before I'm allowed to uh, hold on to the hurt? Right? How many times do I have to forgive before I'm allowed to uh, plot my revenge? How many times do I have to give grace before I'm allowed to get even? Right? And Peter even answers his own question, or at least gives a suggestion. He says, uh, seven times. Now, Peter's being quite generous here. Uh, like I said, th- th- this question had been debated in the synagogues. The rabbis were, were, were kind of obsessed with this question a little bit about what, 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 how, how much forgiveness goes. And they had kind of settled on three times. That after three times, there was a loophole in the Torah that allowed for one to hold a grudge. But uh, Peter doesn't say three times. Peter says seven times. Where does Peter get that number? Well, I think Peter was in church when Jesus preached a message on forgiveness in Luke chapter 17. And in that message, Jesus says that if thy brother trespassed against you seven times in a day, thou art to rebuke him, and if he repents, thou shalt forgive him. Now, first of all, this has got massive implication. I mean, seven times in a day is a lot to be hurting someone. But, but, but Peter's big takeaway from the message is, so what about the eighth time? Like on the eighth time, am I allowed to start hurting him like he's hurt me? On the eighth time, am I allowed to to make him pay? On the eighth time, am I allowed to, to, to say, well, forget forgiveness and start plotting my revenge? What about the eighth time? And Jesus's answer stuns Peter, and I believe it ought to stun every single one of us. For Jesus looks at Peter and says, I say unto you not seven times, but until 70 times seven. Well, what's Jesus doing here? I don't think Jesus is just pointing out a math equation for Peter to figure out real quick. Like, no, 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 Peter, do the math. You still have 483 times to go, okay? So get your tally book out. You keep track. And when you get to 490, you go get them, buddy. Go make them pay, right? No, I don't think that's what Jesus is doing here. I also don't think Jesus is doing what I do with my kids when, when they pull my numbers out and use them against me. Like, Dad, you said seven times. No, 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 no. I didn't say seven times. I said 70 times seven, right? Like, just trying to trump his number. No, Jesus is doing something very intentional, and he's actually referencing an Old Testament passage of Scripture all the way back in Genesis chapter 4. Now, Genesis 4 contains the wonderful story of Cain and Abel. That's a good one, isn't it? That's a horrible one. Cain kills Abel, okay? It's the, the first murder in Scripture. And in a little bit of an ironic move at the end of that narrative, Cain cries out to the Lord and says that now that I have taken my brother's life, lo, others will seek to take my life. 
And so the Lord, in an act of compassion, puts a mark upon Cain's life, and he says that anyone that takes Cain's life, vengeance will be mine, saith the Lord, sevenfold. Well, after that, we get a genealogy of Cain. Most of us read the genealogies like we read most, most wedding announcements that come in the mail. Wonderful. And we toss them to the side, right? Like, who cares who's getting married? Who cares who's having kids? I really don't want to come to your gender reveal party. No, thank you, okay? Like, that's kind of how we read these genealogies. Like, we don't know these people, and so we don't care about these people. But out of the genealogy of Cain, out of all the begats, comes a man named Limech. And Limech just starts talking out of the genealogy. Like he just randomly is talking, and not only is he randomly talking out of nowhere, but he's randomly talking out of nowhere in the third person, okay? He says, ye wives of Limech, hear me. I have slain a child for my wounding. I have killed a young man for my bruising. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, Limech shall be avenged seventy and sevenfold. All right, well, this is quite the confession from our man named Lemek here. He has just confessed to murdering two people, uh, young people, for wounding him, bruising him. In the Hebrew, it's very vague. It's as if they have hurt his ego. They have upset him in some minor way, and he has taken their lives because of it. And he, he boldly proclaims that if God's going to avenge Cain sevenfold, well, Limech avenges seventy and sevenfold. It's almost as if the ode of Limech is, you don't mess with me. <laughs> you hurt me, you offend me, you're going to pay for it with your life. There is major consequences. And you can say what you will about the ode of Limech, but that is exactly how our world operates, is it not? You hurt me, you're going to fill it. You, you, you mess with me? Well, I'm going to make sure you pay for it. And oftentimes, bitterness is not about putting an end to the pain. It's actually about keeping the pain in motion. It's about keeping that pain circulating, and oftentimes it's about keeping that pain escalating. Because now I've got to hurt them more than they've hurt me. I've got to make sure they really pay. We never just take an eye for an eye. We like to take the tooth and the hand with it, don't we? Yeah, yeah. And Jesus speaks into that worldview, and he says, listen, I know you live in a world that teaches you those that have hurt you minorly deserve major consequences. But listen, a follower of Jesus is someone who goes out and finds the person who has hurt them the most, who deserves it the least, and offers them endless grace. You offer them endless forgiveness. Words, what Jesus is telling Peter is, Peter, you never hold on to the grudge. Peter, you, you never hold on to bitterness. Peter, you always offer forgiveness. You always offer grace. Seventy times seven. I mean, that's wonderful, Jesus. Paint it on a Hobby Lobby sign, sell it to my mom. She'll buy it. But, but Jesus, that's not real. Huh, that person hurt me. That person ruined my life. We'll, we'll say things like, uh, even when I think about what that person has done, I, I, I relive what they've done and what they've said. My, my mind goes right back there. And listen, I want to be honest with you this morning. I, I don't know you. Uh, you don't know me. I don't know the degree of pain or the depth of betrayal that you have perhaps endured. I, I don't know the trauma that maybe keeps you up at night, that, that keeps you tossing and turning, the, the, the nightmares that aren't you in your sleep. I, I, I don't know your pain. All I know is that what Jesus says here in this text is that his grace is greater. That what he has done for you is greater than what has been done to you. Now we can be honest, this is church, that's a tough one. 
That's a tough truth to swallow. And so what Jesus does next is he speaks a parable unto them. Now, a parable was an earthly story that brought heavenly meaning to the situation. It brought a heavenly perspective to your earthly situation. And in many cases, it's a simple story that will help you understand a complex truth, right? And so Peter's face looked like our faces this morning, like, and that's a tough one, Jesus. I mean, you're the rabbi, but I don't know if I believe that, right? I don't know if I can do that. And so Jesus is going to speak this parable to help Peter and to help us. And so what I want to do for the rest of the time we've got this morning is I want to trisect the parable into three parts. And hopefully by the time we go get lunch, we will understand how important forgiveness is to God, but also we'll understand just how important forgiveness is for you and for me this morning. Can we do that? All right, you guys ready? All right, so p- put your seatbelt on. We're going to have to go pretty fast here, all right? But, but, but here we go, all right? The, the first section of this parable I've labeled as an accounted debt. An accounted debt. Look at verse number 23. Verse number 23. He says, Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. So we're introduced to this king of a kingdom, this uh, CEO type figure, if you will. And we don't know a lot about him, but he is obviously a generous king. He has loaned out money. But we are, we, we are introduced to him on collection day, right? He is opening up the books. He is making sure all of the debts that have been loaned out are being paid back and probably with interest, right? He's making sure that those that have taken from him are paying back. And he's accounting for the debts. And as he looks over his books, he sees a man that owes him 10,000 talents. Now, while that sounds like a lot of money, the truth is uh, we probably don't know what a talent is. So we don't really know how much money this is or if this is a significant portion of money. And money is hard to transfer over into our vernacular because money is fluid. It's constantly changing. And a talent is not as, as much a, a, a amount of money as it was a sum weight of your total money. Okay, So they weren't calculating talents every day of the week either. Okay, So, so this, is, this is a complex. Scholars are going to land kind of all over the place. I've kind of picked a median of five sources that I like to use. Some will say it's more than this. A few will say it's less. But we've got kind of an average, if you will, uh, a median uh, of sources that I trust. And they tell me that one talent would have been about a year and a half worth of wages for a middle-class individual of Jesus's day. And then that would transfer over to about $36,000 in our day. Okay, Uh, that's one talent. This guy owes 10,000 talents. That's $360 million. Now, this is an astronomical number. Uh, It's actually 10 times the national budget in Jesus' day, okay? Uh, Nobody would have, uh, I mean, everybody in the audience would have started laughing when Jesus said this number because there's no way a king would ever loan out that kind of money, nor is there any way a servant would ever be able to blow through that kind of money. But the point Jesus is making is clear. This man owes a debt he's never paying back. He owes a debt that it would have taken him at least 30 lifetimes to pay back his debt. He is never paying back the debt. And, and the point that Jesus is trying to make is that this man represents all of us when we stand before a holy and just God. Uh, 
Paul says that that is appointed unto man once to die. And after that, there is judgment. In Romans, he says that every one of us shall give an account of himself before God. And Jesus says that every idle word that man shall speak, he shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. So the sobering reality this morning is that apart from Jesus, we are all in deep, deep, deep debt to God. Apart from Jesus, our sin condemns us. Psalms 14, verse number 1, says that the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did good and seek God and understand. But they are altogether become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Paul quotes that passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 3 to let us know it's still true in the, in the New Testament as it was in the Old Testament when he says, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that seeketh after God. There's none that doeth good. They're all together become filthy. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. Paul then starts pulling all sorts of different psalms together to kind of paint the, the charges against humanity as he says, their throat is an open sepulcher. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose tongue is is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are quick to shed blood, destruction and misery in their ways. There is no fear before their eyes. And we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and that the whole world might become guilty before God. The Bible says, listen, your sins have been accounted for. You have been charged in the court of heaven. And you have been pronounced guilty as charged. The wages of sin, the the penalty, the payment for that sin, it is death. It is separation from God. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the good and the evil. He sees all, he knows all, and there is nothing that can be hid from his account. Think about that. The teacher might never find out about the test you cheated on, but God knows about that. Uh, My college professor might never find out that the paper I turned in was plagiarized, unless he watches this, right? But, 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 like, God already knows that. You can clear the, the history off your web browser as much as you want. God knows the sites you look at. He knows about the conversations you have at work. He knows about the conversations you hope your spouse never finds out about. He sees it all. We have all wronged God. There's an accounted debt. But would you notice, secondly, with me this morning, there's an amazing declaration. An amazing declaration. This story is going to take several twists and turns throughout. And this first twist is beautiful. Look at what happens in verse 26. It says, The servant, therefore, fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Now, knowing what we know about how much this man's debt is, this is a very silly thing to say, right? 
He would, it would take him 30 lifetimes to pay back all the debt. He's never paying back all the debt. And yet the king knows that. And yet in spite of that, look what happens in verse number 27. It says, Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, and he loosed him, and he forgave him the debt. Now the word loosed here is one of the three Greek words we translate as grace in the New Testament. So, so the king is going to do for him what he cannot do do for himself. He's going to give him grace, and then he's going to forgive him. That word forgive literally means to open his hand or to let him go. So, so, so notice what's happening here. He's not extending the note. He's not making it interest-only payments for a little while. No, no, no. He's not lengthening it. Uh, no, no, no. As significant as the debt was, the grace of the king is more significant. So he's eliminating the debt from the book in its entirety. That man that once owed 10,000 talents, now owns nothing thanks to the grace of the king, right? Like, like, understand this. As significant as the debt was, the grace of the king was more significant. It was greater. It was more. And that man walked out free that morning. He walked out with new life that morning. A debt that, that, that had crippled him and weighed down on him and literally broken him and impacted every decision he made and every lifestyle decision he had to be a part of. It now was lifted off his shoulders. He got to go out free, but mark it down. Someone paid the debt that day. Someone absorbed the hurt of 10,000 talents. Uh, if a CEO of a company came out today and said, uh, yeah, we found so-and-so, they owed us $350 million, but we decided, eh, no big deal. We'd look at that guy and we'd say, sir, with all due respect, you're an idiot, Right? Like, you just bankrupt your business. What are you doing here? Yeah, that's exactly what the king is doing in the story. He is willing to bankrupt the kingdom, so to speak, for the compassion of one man. You say, why? Well, why would he have compassion like that? Can I say he is, he's compassionate because he's a compassionate king? Compassion is what fuels him. It's what motivates him. It is in his life's blood. Above all else, he is compassionate. And so he loses him. He gives him grace. He forgives him of the debt he owed. And he walks out free. I got to tell you, if you don't know what Jesus' point is at this point in the story, I got some good news for you on a Sunday morning. I got some of what the Bible calls gospel for you on a Sunday morning because that's what Jesus does for you and me. He sees us in our sin. He sees that there is no way we could ever earn or work our way to God. And yet Jesus comes down to be born of a virgin and live 33 and a half years of perfection to go willingly to a cross. Why? To do for you and me what we could not do for ourselves. He takes our payment upon himself. And as he hangs on that cross, he pulls up on those nails and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He says, hey, let them go. Give them freedom. Give them life. Put their sin on mine account. And as he pulls up on those nails and cries, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He took your sin, my sin, past, present, future sins of the entire world, and he bore them on his back. And the Bible says he that knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God through him. Oh, man, when he pulls up on those nails that final time and cries the word to telestai. It's a business word. It would be stamped on papers of debt. It was as if to say it's paid in full. 
Uh, We can't ask you for any more payments. You can't send any more checks in. The debt has been paid for. It is complete. And it's translated beautifully in your Bible with three little words. It is finished. Jesus paid the debt I'd owe. I don't know what you want to call that, but I call it amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. My favorite hymn growing up was grace greater than all our sins. I believe it's the third verse that says, Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What could avail to wash it away? Look, there's flowing a crimson tide. Whiter than snow you might be today. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that can pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all. I think the song says our sin, but I like to sing my sin. Man, my sin is great. His grace is greater. Your sin may be great this morning, but his grace is greater. In, In accounted debt, in amazing declaration. But would you notice with me finally this morning, an atrocious display. An atrocious display. Because as much as I would love for the story to be over right here, it's not, right? Like Jesus has more he wants to say. Because Jesus is not just teaching this parable as if to remind Peter and his disciples and us this morning that we have been forgiven. No, no, remember, he's telling the story to remind Peter that it is important that he forgives, right? And so this, is, this story is going to take another twist. This time it's going to be uh, more disturbing, okay? Uh, so, so look at what happens here in verse 28. Verse 28. It says, but the same servant, so the one that was just forgiven 10,000 talents, the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants. So he goes out and he searches out one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. Now, a pence was a day's worth of wages. So this man owes him a hundred days worth of work. And nowhere in the parable does Jesus say that's not significant. Nowhere in the parable does Jesus say that ought to be no big deal. In fact, if you went three months without work, I'm going to say you'd be hurting a little bit. You'd be stretched financially. You'd be living without with some things. Jesus is just stating a fact. He finds a man that owes him a hundred pence and he laid hands on him and he took him by the throat saying, pay me that thou owest. Okay, so picture what's happened here. He leaves the throne room with new life. By the skin of my teeth, man. That guy's great. What a king. And he gets out in the field and he starts looking. Who's working today? Who's working today? Who's working Ben, Ben, right? Ben, man, I met you before service. Ben, hey, good to see you. Ben, come here. Come here, Ben. Yeah, yeah, come here. Yeah, come on. Man, looking sharp today. Wow, good to see you. Wow. Let's go to this back alley where no one's watching. All right, Ben? Man, it is good to see you. Wow. How's it going? Good. Hey, how's work? Yeah, how's the family? Pay me that thou owest, right? He takes him by the throat. 
pay me that now I gotta be careful Ben seems a little stronger than I am so a little bit in shape got a seven month old all right okay so uh, here we go all right so be careful here you're just this is imaginary totally fictitious okay he grabs him by the throat he says pay me that thou owest now I don't know about you but I wasn't expecting that on a Sunday morning okay so so listen what happens next all right, don't go anywhere. All we've established is you owe me money, okay? So here we go. I like how this is turning out for me. It says in verse 29 that his fellow servant, that, that would be Ben, he fell down at his feet and besought him. Now, please don't do that, okay, Ben? And he said, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Does that sound familiar? Well, it should sound familiar. It's exactly what he just said at the foot of the king. So, so notice here, this is important. He is now being asked for the same grace he has received. It is the same plea for grace. The grace given is identical. In other words, what the king did for him that he could not do for himself, he is now being asked to do for Ben what Ben cannot do for himself. We understand that? Just like the king let him go, Ben is now asking him, please let me go, right? Like, forgive me, right? And look what happens in the next verse. The, the plea is the same. It's the same grace given. It's only to a much lesser extent. And all I mean by that is that 30 lifetimes worth of wages is more than three months worth of wages. Are we on the same page there? 10,000 talents greater than 100 pence. Look what, look what happens. Verse 30, and he would not. He would not forgive. He, he would not give him grace. He would not do for him what he couldn't do for himself. Instead, he took him, he went, and he cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. Okay, so Ben is going to be cast back into his seat. That row is prison. Sorry. Uh, Ben's going to sit in prison. And I just got to be honest with you. I see this, and I get a little bit angry. Because, like, I am so clearly the first servant in the story. I owed a debt to God I could not pay. My sin was wretched. And man, I tried to pay the debt with my righteousness and my good deeds. I grew up in church. I preached sermons from the time I was in eighth grade, okay? So like, I mean, I, I tried to pay my debt. And yet, when Jesus saved me, he saved me from my own self-righteousness so that I might be clothed in his righteousness and made clean, made clean and complete. He absorbed Eric Getch's wretchedness so that I might have his righteousness. I am the first servant. But then the guy that represents me in the story goes and chokes out Ben. I don't want to be that guy. I happen to like Ben. Now, you might not like Ben. Some of you are like, I like to like, choke him harder, right? Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I like Ben, all right? I don't want to be the guy that chokes out Ben. And so I'm, I get a little bit angry, and I start to think, well, I sure hope the king finds out about this, because I don't think he's going to be too happy about the shenanigans going out in the field. And that's exactly what happens. The next verse says, So his fellow servants saw what was done. They were very sorry, and they came and told unto their Lord all that was done. So the king now knows exactly what happened in the field. He knows that the man he had forgiven went out, found a man that owed him a hundred pence, and cast him into prison. And so look what happens in the next verse. Verse 32, Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O oh, thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desiredest me. And all of a sudden I start licking my lips. I'm like, yeah, come on. 
get this guy. Give him the hammer, right? He says in verse 33, shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? Now listen, you don't have to be a Greek scholar to know that's a rhetorical question, okay? Yeah, yeah. The truth is you should have, but you didn't. Too late for you, bucko. You're out of here, right? And man, look at this next verse. And his Lord was wroth, and he delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. And man, as much as that, as much as that is in me, I want to close my Bible, stand up, put my hands towards heaven and say, hallelujah, justice is served. We got him. Yes. And then I sit down, expecting to go into chapter 19, And I find there's another verse left in chapter 18. Now, I don't know what Jesus could possibly add to make the story any better, but apparently there is. So we should probably look at it. Verse 35, Jesus says, So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, Eric Getch, if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. And suddenly... I find myself saying, oh, Lord, give him another shot. Give him another chance. Why is that? Why is it that when this is just some no-name servant in Scripture, I got no problem sending him to the tormentor's den? But when it's me, it's like, oh, Lord, where's your compassion and mercy and grace? Lord! Give me another chance. You know why that is for me? Well, it's because I I have this view about life that I deserve mercy and you deserve justice. You deserve justice. I deserve mercy, right? Oh, officer, I am so sorry. Was I really going 85 in a school zone? Wow, I did not. I was on my way to church, okay, serving the Lord tonight, just getting a little excited. Got a little bit of a lead foot not from here. Please, would you have some compassion and mercy? But when someone cuts me off in traffic, right? When when, when the Lamborghini whizzes by me, it's like, well, go get that guy. Arrest him. Take his license away. Give me his car. That seems fair. Like, come on. Justice for you. Mercy for me. And Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh. That is not the way it works. You do not get to receive my grace and then refuse to give it to others. No, no. If your sins have been forgiven, well, then you no longer get to count the sins of others. No, no. If you have been forgiven by God, if God has given you His grace, if you have received the grace of God, you now have the responsibility to go out and give that grace to the people around you, even to the people who hurt you the most and deserve it the least. You say, ooh, I was all on board with what you were saying, getting ready to shout amen. But you said that last part, and I just don't know about that. That person hurt me. That person ruined my life. That person upset me. That person hasn't learned their lesson. That person's not even sorry for what they've done. That person doesn't deserve my forgiveness. You say, Eric, uh, no, 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 no. Can I just tell you this morning? God does not command you to forgive people because they've earned it, deserve it, learned a lesson, none of that. No, no, remember our verse, that you would forgive one another even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. You are commanded to forgive because you have been forgiven. 
We forgive others because one day on Calvary, we understand that Jesus Christ died for our sins, but not for our sins only, but for the sins of the entire world, which would include the person that hurt you and that person that, 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 that deserves it the least. Jesus died for them as well. And so we go out having the forgiveness of God and the grace of God that has been bestowed on our life. And we go show that grace and give that grace to those around you. You say, Eric, that doesn't sound all that fair. That person owes me an explanation. At the very least, they owe me some money. That person owed me a marriage or a childhood. Like, I mean, come on, Eric, that's not fair. You're right. It's not fair. It's grace. And you'll never be asked to give more than you have already received from God. That is the principle we're learning in this parable. That the grace you have received from God is greater than the grace you're being asked to give to those around you. So, so listen. The next time the thoughts trigger you, and they trigger that anger, and they trigger that bitterness, and they trigger that, that, that hatefulness... Turn your eyes intentionally from what was done to you to what Jesus did for you. Because what he did for you is greater than what was given to you. Now listen, forgiveness does not always mean reconciliation. Forgiveness is a one-way street you walk down. Reconciliation requires two people. Okay, Forgiveness does not mean you forget it. Like, oh, you forgive and forget. Listen, oftentimes forgiving is remembering the hurt that was done. And instead of choosing to be God, you give it over to God and live in the freedom of forgiveness. So it doesn't mean that the hurt goes away. It doesn't mean that the pain goes away. It really doesn't even relieve them of, of, of the consequences for what they've done to you. What forgiveness does is releases them from the hurt that they hold in your heart. It releases them from the prison you have cast them into. Now listen, this is big. This is important. This is really, really good stuff. But before we go eat lunch, I got to clarify something. Because if I don't, we're going to leave and we're going to eat and we're going to have a messed up view of God. Okay? God seems important. Want to get him right this morning. All right? So here we go. This, this parable has been used by all sorts of different people and all sorts of different denominations and all sorts of different pastors to teach some really weird things. Okay? So when, when Jesus speaks a parable, it's important to know that we don't always get a so likewise statement. Oftentimes Jesus tells a story and he lets it linger. He lets it hang he lets us wrestle with the implications of what it all meant and why he told it. But in this case, he gives us a so likewise statement, a very clear reason he's told the parable. All right. So because we got one, we should probably notice it. All right. So this is Jesus' own application in verse 35. He says, so likewise shall my heavenly father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. And if I could summarize that into one sentence, I would say that Jesus wants us to learn from this parable that what happens to the man in the story will happen to us if we don't learn how to sincerely forgive the people who have hurt us in life. Okay, so then we got to think, what happened to the man in the story? And this is where all the weird stuff comes into play. All right, so look at verse number 34. He says, and his Lord was wroth, and he delivered him to the tormentors, Till he should pay all that was due unto him. 
Now, there's a couple of ways we can interpret this verse. The first way we can interpret it is that the Lord was wroth, and he delivered him, that's the servant, to the tormentors. He cast him into prison till he, the servant, should pay all that was due unto him, the king. And if that's the case, how long, how long is this guy sitting in prison for? Uh, we said 30 lifetimes, right? 10,000 talents. Uh, we, would, we would apply that to everlasting judgment. We would apply that to a lake of fire. We would call that hell. And man, there's all sorts of Baptists that try to jump through all sorts of theological loopholes like, well, Jesus is just being dramatic for parable's sake. Okay. Well, listen, Jesus is not allowed to lie for dramatic effect. He doesn't do that. He doesn't try to fear you into doing the right thing, okay? Everything Jesus says has to line up with everything else that he says, whether it's a parable or whether it's not, okay? So let's just all get on the same page right away. Jesus means what he says. Okay, now listen, if we interpret the verse like this man goes into the tormentor's den for everlasting judgment, then that means that if we don't go out and forgive the people in our lives, well, then all of our sin is placed back on us. I just got to tell you, I got massive problems with that. Because that is not what happens when Jesus dies for my sin and I call on him in faith to forgive me. No, no, no. When Jesus forgave me my sin on the cross, when he said it is finished, he meant it. In fact, he proved it with an empty tomb, right? He proved it by rising over sin and rising over death. So listen, when I trust Jesus, he casts my sin as far as the east is from the west. He doesn't wait for me to mess up and goes, oh, nope, all the sin's back on your head. If that was the case, then his death meant very little. The death of Jesus is of no significance. If God just waits for us to mess up or do something we don't like, or he, that he doesn't like, and it's just like whoosh, all the sin back on you. No, no, Jesus paid it all. Amen? Amen. Okay, so there's got to be another way to read this verse. And I think there is. You could read the verse that his Lord was wroth and he delivered him, that's the servant, to the tormentors till he, the servant, should pay all that was due unto him, the servant. And what's due unto him in this passage of Scripture? A hundred pence. And what did he do with the man that owed him a hundred pence? He cast him into prison. He cast him to his tormentors. And the king knows that, right? The, the servants came and told him all that happened. And so this king, in his wisdom, he says, listen, you have been forgiven, but you're not living like you're forgiven. And so you're going to go to the tormentor's den until you learn how to forgive. Until you learn that those that are forgiven, forgive. He puts them in prison, but he hands them the key out at the exact same time. And he says, listen, until you learn how to let him out, you're going to be in a prison of your own making. And I love that, my friends, because that's exactly what bitterness does. Bitterness binds us in a prison of our own making. And we think we're hurting them, but in reality, we're the ones hurting we're the ones who can't sleep. We're the ones whose relationships are infected by mistrust. And Jesus says, you want to know what forgiveness is? Forgiveness is setting someone free and then realizing that that person is you. You're the one who gets set free. You're the one who starts sleeping better at night. You're the one whose relationships can slowly be built up in trust again. Again, it's not that the pain goes away. It's not that reconciliation happens immediately. It's not that that would even be a smart thing to happen, right? Forgiveness is simply living in the freedom that came to you when Jesus died and wiped your sins away. So listen, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? No, 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 Peter. You never hold on to bitterness. You never hold on to the grudge. 
you always offer forgiveness. Why? Because my grace is greater. There is a life-changing power in forgiveness. Because when you forgive, two people get set free. Lord, we thank you today for your forgiveness. We thank you that you sent your son to die on a cross for our sins. Lord, I thank you that you forgave me of my sin. That the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, I'm not naive this morning to think that there might be someone in here that doesn't know you as their Savior. And so, Lord, I want to pray for them tonight. I want to pray for them this morning. There's someone that doesn't know your grace. They don't know your forgiveness. That, Lord, I pray they would come to know Jesus this morning. They would come to know you as their everlasting Father and faithful friend who wipes their sin and their shame away. And, Lord, I pray for those of us in this auditorium that we know you, we know your forgiveness, but, Lord, maybe we don't always live in that forgiveness. We don't always live in the freedom that comes with that forgiveness. And so, Lord, would you help us this morning to hold up the hurts, hold up the offenses, hold up the wrongdoings that others have done, and would you help us to realize they're not sparking joy, they're not helping us live in peace, they're not helping us to live after the way of Jesus. And would you help us cast them out of our lives, cast those hurts, cast those offenses, and would you help us to learn how to forgive like we've been forgiven? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I don't know how you do invitations here. I'll have pastor come in just a moment and kind of help me out. But I, I just think there's a couple of things we can take away and just kind of ponder on in the next few moments. I believe this passage of Scripture helps us understand that we will never understand forgiveness until we have been forgiven. So until you know the forgiveness of Jesus, it's going to be very difficult to forgive the people who have harmed us in our life. So if we know Jesus and we know the forgiveness he's offered, now we can start to embrace the forgiving of others. But if you don't know his forgiveness, man, I, I, I really encourage you this morning, thank, thank on Calvary and what Jesus has done for you and your sin today. The second thing I think we can take away from this passage is that we can leave this auditorium being grace givers or fault finders. And the choice really is up to us. Now, my dad used to say that those that go looking for faults are pretty good at finding them, right? So you want to be offended and mad at somebody in this auditorium or somebody in your neighborhood or someone at your workplace, chances are good. It'll be easy to find fault and hold grudges and get bitter. But the way of the Jesus follower ought to be someone who gives grace. To uh, err as human, to forgive truly is divine. It is living in the nature of Jesus Christ and why he came to this earth to forgive others. So may we with one another be tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven us. I'm going to pray and have pastor come and close the service as the Holy Spirit leads him. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for this grace that you have bestowed upon us. And I pray you'd help us to live in that grace, walk in that grace, and extend that grace to the people who need it in our lives.